The Lord is very good to us. Let's take a few minutes. A few minutes. We want to sing a couple more songs and look at some uh, perversions of grace. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Let's talk about frustrated grace. Now let me make something clear. God's grace, which is God rewarding and clearing enemies, is never frustrated. But the understanding of grace gets frustrated. The knowledge of grace gets frustrated. The doctrine of grace gets frustrated. The practice of grace gets frustrated. But God's grace never gets frustrated. God reaches forth His right hand to save. There are none that can stay that hand. They cannot even question, what doest thou? Nebuchadnezzar learned that wonderful lesson and told us about it in Daniel chapter 4. So when I refer to different faulty graces, I'm not saying that anything interrupts God's grace, but there are perversions of the doctrine of grace. Frustrated grace. See, God's grace is never frustrated. It saves every single one He ever intended to save. But there are men that try to add to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they frustrate the grace of God by adding things onto it that were not to be added to it. It's all of grace. And when they add something to it, they pervert grace, and they frustrate grace. This is Paul's choice of terminology. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 21. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. You frustrate the grace of God by making it of none effect by trying to add some of the works of the law to it. And anyone that adds anything to God's grace in their doctrine, they are frustrating God's grace. They are hindering it, limiting it, and confusing it and basically rendering it null and void because they're trying to add something to it. Look at Galatians chapter 5. This error that we're talking about right now, about grace, is a humanistic view of grace that incorporates the will or the activity of man. It follows from misunderstanding the depravity of man. It includes man's obsession that he needs to be involved in the decision-making for his eternal life. It underestimates the gulf that needs to be crossed for peace and satisfaction with God that can only be done by Christ. It overestimates the ability of man to perform some act sufficiently acceptable to God to secure grace. And it's all frustrating to the grace of God. If you'll recall from this morning, I showed you from Galatians chapter 1 that Paul marveled that they were so soon removed from the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which was not another, it was truly a perversion. But Galatians 5, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore. Now, when you're standing and it says fast, fast means speed in our mind, in our thinking, and stand means still. There's no speed involved, but it's fastened. Stand fast. Don't move. Stand. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. 
And when it says that, we can't fall from God's grace, but we can fall from the proper understanding or the the right doctrine of grace. We can fall from it to think that we can add circumcision or that we can add the works of the law to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we try to add anything that the sinner does to activate or obtain the grace of God, Christ is dead in vain, is the Apostle's summary. Christ is dead in vain. He did it all by Himself. He said, it is finished. By one sacrifice and one offering, for, He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And when we try to add to it, it ruins it. It began with Judaizing legalists. Those were Jews that couldn't give up their Old Testament religion and wanted to add circumcision and the law of Moses to the finished work of Christ. And you can see what Paul says about it right here. That frustrates the grace of God. It is frustrated grace in doctrine. Roman Catholicism comes next with their sacramentalism. Sacramentalism is the word describing how Catholics are saved by the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. Those seven sacraments are baptism, confirmation, confession, penance, holy matrimony, holy orders, the mass, and last rites, or they may call it extreme unction. Catholics, Lutherans, Episcopalians, Methodists, Presbyterians are all sacramentalists to varying degrees. They teach baptismal regeneration by assuming that God's grace can be given to children at birth. They call them the means of grace. They can haul the grace of God around in a flask or two. You know, one flask has water in it, the other flask has wine in it, because they can have the Lord's Supper wherever they need to, to convey grace. A sacrament in those churches is an outward sign, like the Lord's Supper or baptism, that conveys inward grace. An outward ordinance, an outward commandment of religion, of the New Testament, that conveys grace. But that's not what the Bible teaches. We get ba- When we get baptized, it doesn't convey grace to us. We get baptized because God's grace has already been conveyed to us. When we have the Lord's Supper, we don't look at the Lord's Supper for getting grace. We look at the Lord's Supper for remembering grace that was conveyed to us in the cross of Calvary by the Lord Jesus Christ. These priests or pastors talk about the means of grace as if they were practicing witchcraft with a spell. They carry it around with them. They've got power of extreme unction. Extreme unction. A man's on his deathbed. He's about to die. That priest can come in there with holy water and say a few words over him and sprinkle water just like a witch would to save that soul in a Roman Catholic concept of thinking. That's sacramentalism. God, thank you for saving us from sacramentalism. There's a new form of frustrated grace that was created by gospel sacramentalism. And they turn the gospel into a sacrament that they carry, and if they can get you to make a decision for Jesus, then we can access, activate, grab a hold of, and bring into power the grace of God. It's decisional regeneration. What's the difference between baptismal regeneration and decisional regeneration? They're both wrong. The Bible says that to be a son of God and to be born again happens this way. John 1.13, which were born, not of blood, So it's not by descendant, like from Abraham, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The will of the flesh is your will. The will of man are your godparents. Understand that at those sacramental baptisms of little babies, 
There are godparents that stand in. Godparents. Listen, I don't want to be the son or the daughter of a godparent. I want to be the son or the daughter of God. Godparents. It's ridiculous. But you know, they bring along gospel regeneration. If we can get these little children by enticing them into clubs, by enticing them into activities, by telling scary stories, by telling good stories, by offering candy, a new set of clothes or a toy, or by whatever means they use, let's get a little decision for Jesus. It's gospel sacramentalism. And so the preacher, he doesn't carry a flask from the Lord's Supper. He doesn't carry a canteen for sprinkling. He brings the gospel. He tells the story of Jesus. And if you believe the story of Jesus, then you're sacramentally saved because there is grace conveyed through the preaching of the gospel. The Bible doesn't teach that. The grace of God has to come by the power of the Holy Spirit and arrest us, change us, give us a new birth and a new man that has ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to understand. Then we hear the gospel. We say, that's true. I believe. I didn't. That didn't activate any grace. That was the result of grace. And so, you know, grace is being frustrated everywhere we turn. You know, it doesn't really matter whether you're an Arminian or a Calvinist. They all frustrate the grace of God. Because if you scratch a Calvinist, as I was taught 30 plus years ago, you'll find an Arminian. If if you scratch them hard enough, it's like going along with with a set of keys in a car that's been painted. You know, if you scrape it a little bit, you can see the paint that was underneath there. And if you scrape a Calvinist, you'll find out that they're really Arminians at heart because they cannot be justified without faith. And so along comes the Calvinist carrying his sacramentalism of justification by faith. We believe that justification was legally done at the cross, assigned to us in eternity past, and our believing the gospel is just for our assurance of the matter. That when it says we're justified by faith, that's for our assurance. That's for us to lay hold of justification because it also says we're justified by works. And those works are just the evidence that we have been justified. For grace to be grace, it's got to be unconditional favor without right conditions or means that create debt. The relationship of faith to grace is simple. God saves by grace alone. From election in eternity past to glorification in eternity to come, which we believe by faith to identify ourselves as the elect of God, assure our hearts and lay hold of eternal life and obtain the other practical benefits of the gospel. Faith is not the condition. Faith is not the instrument, the means, or the activator of grace. Grace is the condition, the instrument, the means, and the activator of faith. Faith does not lead to grace. Grace leads to faith. Grace is before faith, not faith before grace. We need to get and keep the gospel horse, grace, before the cart of faith to know grace in truth. God gives salvation by grace according to His free will, and we respond in varying degrees of faith and obedience. It's the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the faithfulness of God, that uh, is important. Faith and works, without which faith is worthless, our means of laying hold of our salvation. And by this means, the promise of eternal life for the elect is sure to all the seed, whether they're infants, 
heathen, strong believers, weak believers, well-taught believers, or poorly taught believers, they're all saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But men try to frustrate grace. Most every Christian denomination in the United States sings and speaks often of God's grace, but hardly a church anywhere gives God's grace all the honor, all the credit, all the glory for eternal life. They work man in their one way or another. They may call it a condition. They may call it an instrument. They may call it the means. But they call it something to work man into it. We don't. Jesus Christ finished it all, and we don't frustrate the grace of God at all. So remember that. That was the apostles' choice of words. I do not frustrate the grace of God. We don't want to frustrate the grace of God. When you meet an Arminian or a sacramentalist or one of these people that I just implied or alluded to or, or identified by name, you can say to them, you're frustrating the grace of God. Show them that verse. And say, if you add anything to the finished work of Christ, Christ died in vain. That's what Paul said about your theory. Let's go to another one. Jude, verses 3 and 4. The little book of Jude. You've heard this one recently. But let's remind ourselves of it again. Jude, this, well, this perversion of grace flows from the one that we just looked at. Frustrating the grace of God with sacramentalism or a, a decisional system of salvation. You know, when you tell the person, when the person fulfills the sacraments, the priest says, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. I mean, he acts like he's God. He acts like he's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like, that's what they'll say. Go in peace. There's only, there's only one being that can say that. And that's the God of heaven. Right. Or somebody makes a decision for Jesus and they say, now you're saved. You can never get unsaved. I love there, you know, once you lie once, you've got to lie twice. And so they lie with decisional salvation. They add to it, once saved, always saved. And so when, now that you've made your decision, you're saved and you can never be unsaved. No matter how you live, you know, God's going to save you. And you, when you die, you're going to go to heaven and all that stuff. And so they tie those two together. There's no reason to live a holy life. So it flows from that sacramental idea, I did something, so now I'm saved. It's all done. Wrong. Jude, verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness. When you tell a person that you've made a decision for Jesus and once saved, always saved, you have turned the grace of God into lasciviousness because the grace of God teaches us things. It teaches us to live a holy life. And when you tell them this little decision and this once saved, always saved doctrine coming together, it's all taken care of for you. That leads to living any way you want to. Because I know I'm saved because my story... I was saved when I was three years old. With great faith, I laid hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I was three. And you know, children are raised that way. 
You know, maybe five, it may be ten, it may be fifteen, it may be twenty, it doesn't matter. But once they make that decision for Jesus and they believe this, then it doesn't matter how they live. And they just hear over and over again, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that out of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so works are just put down, put down, put down, put down, until there are none. As long as you've made a decision for Jesus, you're saved. But there are good works taught in the Bible. And we're supposed to bear fruit in those works. And if we love the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to keep His commandments. And so it leads to lascivious grace. Now, Jude and Second Peter chapter 2 are fraternal twins. They are similar explanations of Scripture. So if you'll turn over to Second Peter chapter 2, I'd like to show you Peter's words for what Jude called turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. There have been studies done by those people that have gone forward at Billy Graham crusades. Men have followed up on those people and taken statistical surveys that come up with the results that about 2% are living for the Lord. That is horrible. What happened? Make a decision for Jesus because you just heard an NFL football player give his testimony and Miss America tell you that she invited Jesus into her heart and once saved, always saved. You are saved now, Billy tells them from his podium. And they go home and live any way they want to. There's been no change in their life. There's been no grace of God in their life. They're, they're not even regenerated. If they're regenerated, they're carnal Christians because there's nothing taught about how they should live. So it turns the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Lasciviousness is submitting to your lusts and fulfilling the lusts of your flesh. Lasciviousness is an unbridled, ungoverned, unruly way of living a lustful life. And so they turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness. They don't preach against all the things that the New Testament condemns. They don't require obedience to God's commandments as the evidence of eternal life. They don't ever answer the question, how do I make my calling and election sure? They don't know that Second Peter's in the Bible in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. They don't know how to use those verses. All The, the only verses they know how to use are John 3, 16, Romans 10, 9 through 13. That's all they know how to use. And so they take, make a decision for Jesus, or Revelation 3.20, you know, make a decision for Jesus, and once saved, always saved, and so you can live any way you want to. And it leads to lascivious grace. And brethren, it's all around us. And uh, Peter's words are this way, Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 19. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same as he brought in bondage. They promise them liberty. You can live any, you can live any way you want to. They say, they promise them liberty. It's so easy to trust in Jesus. You can, you can go out of here tonight and know that if you were to be in a car accident this afternoon, you would go straight to heaven. So they promise them liberty. There's nothing about repentance. There's nothing about the Lordship of Christ. There's nothing about obedience, which leads us to things I've mentioned to you before, but the Lordship controversy. John MacArthur is being crucified right now by these Arminian idiots that, that say because John MacArthur, in believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and in the prayer of confession that when you get saved, because he's a very weak Calvinist, 
basically an Arminian, but they're saying about John MacArthur, because you have to name the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord in your life, he is adding law works like a Jewish legalist to getting saved, and the people in Grace Community Church are going to hell. It is unbelievable. But you know what? Arminianism gone to seed, and then the seeds gone to seed, and then the seeds gone to seed, end up with, how can I make this decision easier? You know, once saved, always saved. They don't have to do anything. All I have to do is write in their Bible, O-S-A-S. But how can I make this one easier? Well, let's get lordship out of it. Do not say that Jesus is Lord. If you say that Jesus is Lord, you're not getting saved. This is lascivious grace. Where you are claiming that you have the grace of God, you're saved, you're going to heaven, but you don't call Jesus even Lord in words, let alone lifestyle. No Lord, no repentance, no reformation, no good works, no changed life. You may not talk about that. You may not say that in your sinner's prayer. That is the Lordship controversy. There are thousands of pastors railing on John MacArthur because he wants them to say Lord, and he uses the word repentance, like Acts 20 and verse 21, and they say those people, by that little prayer, are going to hell because they've added law works. I know. I know what you're saying. But since you don't believe me, go home and punch in a Google search box, Lordship Controversy and see what's been going down for the last 50 years as, as men have tried to reduce what you have to say to get eternal life and get your name in the book of life down to nothing. The jailer said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ thou shalt be saved. That if thou shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead and shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable, the generation that we're living in. Sound doctrine, they don't even have sound heresy. It's, it's ridiculous. And I'm not, ex- you gotta go, you gotta go look at it. You gotta see the books that have been written on both sides of this. It's, it's terrible. Okay, well, that's happening. That le- this leads us to the much ballyhooed grace revolution with Joseph Prince and as its lead spokesman. You know, he loves to quote John 1.17. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. He tells you every sermon, that's his favorite verse. He uses ten times more Bible in a sermon than Joel Osteen has imagined in a nightmare. Um, at least he does use the Bible, but I'm ten times more than Joel Osteen is not much Bible. Don't go too far with Joseph Smith. I mean, Joseph Prince. What Smith, Prince, it doesn't matter. Joseph Smith was the founder of the Mormons and Joseph Prince the founder of the Grace Revolution and a hyper-grace idea that it's just got, there's so much grace that it's unbearable. First John chapter 1 isn't for believers. First John chapter 1, you never confess your sins. They're already forgiven. There's no repentance. You don't talk about repentance. Uh, some of his errors are just ridiculous. John, first John, first chapter is not for believers. You cannot break fellowship with God because it's secured by the cross of Calvary because there's just so much grace. Hyper grace. You cannot command love. 
to preach that a person needs to love another person? You can't command that because there's so much grace it's already taught us that. I wonder why Paul spent so much time teaching people to love one another. He must not have known the grace of God. Confession and repentance are not for believers. Grace to them. And they outnumber us about, I don't know, 450,000 to one. I don't, it's a big number. But you know, we don't care. The men in the generation of Noah outnumbered him pretty big. All we're going to do is stick by the Bible. The Bible warns us that false teachers are going to come along promising liberty and turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. We look around us and we can see the fulfillment of it. Grace to them is to talk about Daddy God and Mother Grace. Just give me a moment on two points. It's all about Daddy God. There is no Daddy God in the Bible. That's just an irreverent way of talking about God. Abba does not mean Daddy. That's just somebody that wanted to be funny in a pulpit and tell you something that might get tears out of your eyes. We're supposed to rever- we're supposed to worship Him acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Amen. When I'm reverencing my father, I don't call him Daddy. And I don't want to be called Daddy. When I'm being addressed by a child that wants my respect, they're going to speak in a more respectful choice of words than that. But they talk about Daddy God. You ought to go to their website. You ought to look at their magazines and see Daddy God and how Daddy God is going to stuff their Christmas stocking with every conceivable thing that they can ever imagine, and that's grace to them. That's grace. It's just, it's just a candy. It's just a big vending machine in heaven that they can call grace. They talk about grace. And listen, it's good words and fair speeches. Is the guy good? Is he charismatic? Does he have a spirit that controls the people that listen to him? Yes, yes, and yes. And those good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Lord, thank You for teaching us that there is a grace that is lascivious grace and that we should not have anything to do with it. Look at Titus. You're close by. Look at Titus chapter 2 and just be reminded that the grace of God is supposed to teach us some things. The three pastoral epistles, first and second Timothy, then Titus. Titus chapter 2. They cannot even slightly grasp the distinguishing grace of God in election or the grace to separate from all forms of worldliness in flesh and spirit that the Bible teaches us. They have no concept of fear and trembling terror taught by the Apostle Paul. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both the will and to do of His good pleasure. Joseph Prince loves to yap about Mother Grace sucking up to Pope Frank I, who well knows the words of their chief prayer of their rosary. Remember in the rosary, there's 165 prayers. 15 are the Lord's Prayer, Our Father which art in heaven. What's the other 150? It starts off this way. Hail Mary, full of grace. Hail Mary, full of grace. Hail Mary, full of grace. Joseph Prince talks about Mother Grace. He did not get that from the Holy Spirit. He did not get that from the Bible. Titus, chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, 
teaching us that. What is the grace of God supposed to teach us? That God's a big sugar daddy, candy dispensing machine in the sky, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that we might get all kinds of stuff and never be sick in body, finances, or marriage. No, it says that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. That's what grace teaches. When we hear about grace, we should want to go out here, go out of here in just a few minutes and live better for the God who bestowed His grace upon us than we ever have before. Grace teaches denying ourselves to be a peculiar people for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's go to uh, Hebrews twelve fifteen. More could be said about that. It's not worth saying it. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15. So we want to be on the lookout for frustrated grace where things are being added to the grace of God. We want to be on the lookout for lascivious grace when there's a message of grace that is presented that doesn't have any impetus. There is no doctrine. There is no pressing of the people to live a holy life. So it turns the grace of God into lascivious. You can just live a lust-filled life and yap about the grace of God. But that is not what the Bible teaches. So we come to vain grace. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. We do not want to fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. You can waste God's grace in your life. And the warning here is, we should be diligent about this matter, so that we do not fail of the grace of God. Now come over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and get a cross-reference to that one. Lest any man fail of the grace of God, that we would not live up to what that grace saved us for. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1. We then, as workers together with Him, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. Now this is the apostle in his second epistle writing to a church where he's already told them they're the saved of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they could waste the grace of God in their lives. And we're, Paul is saying, we, as his ministers, are beseeching you along with the Lord Jesus Christ that you don't receive the grace of God in vain. We don't want to hear about grace today and go out and live like, live any old way. We want to hear about the grace of God today and let it change our lives. We want it to motivate us and drive us and instruct us and lead us to changing things, to repenting and to reforming and to being, having, being in a closer walk with the God of heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace is going to accomplish every single thing that God ever sent it out to with the doctrine of grace. The gospel of grace can be received in vain by it not changing your life. This is a slothful approach to the grace of God. Now, you know what Paul said, the grace of God that was bestowed on me was not in vain. How was it not in vain? The grace that was given to Saul of Tarsus that made him into the Apostle Paul, what did Paul do so that the grace of God was not wasted on him? He labored more abundantly than they all. He labored more abundantly than they all. Do you know how we ought to go out of here today? I'm going to put forth more effort than I have ever put forth before, and I'm going to put forth more effort than anyone else. 
not for my praise, not for my honor, but for the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of God on me. If you're convicted at all that you believe that there's a grace of God in this, this world and the race that you're part of is damned and damnation is approaching, we want to go out of here and live for that God with all our might. If it's sins of the heart, which may be coming next Sunday, we rip them out and get over them. We squash them and flush them. If it's sin of speech, we shut our mouths and clean up our speech. If it's things our hands do, if it's places our feet take us, if it's thoughts of our mind, we change them for the Lord's sake and let grace change us. And we, we put our, our energy and our might into serving the kingdom of heaven and serving the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul did. And that's how God's grace was not bestowed on him in vain. True grace brings growth and it'll bear fruit in people's lives. Which brings me to applied grace. There have been three errors. Frustrated grace, lascivious grace, and vain grace. Where you hear the grace of God in truth, like the Corinthians, like the Hebrews, but it doesn't change your life. You're just lazy with it. You're negligent. You hold on to secret sins. Lord, save us from that. I want you to apply the grace of God. Brethren, if God's been gracious to you in free salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ, do you know it and do you live like it? In every part of your life, if you understand God's grace, you're going to give thanks for it. We're bound to give thanks. If you understand God's grace, you should passionately adore the Lord Jesus Christ like the woman from last Sunday. If you understand God's grace, you're going to sing with greater enthusiasm. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 talk, describes singing in the New Testament church this way. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. We should want to sing songs of grace. If you understand God's grace, it should cause abundant, diligent labor. When, when I'm asking for volunteers to serve in the church, you should want to be first in line. You should want to bowl me over. We should all want to do that. Because that's grace that is not being received in vain, but grace leading to abundant and diligent labors like the Apostle Paul. Look at Philippians chapter 4. I'm, I'm very close to the end. Brethren, just hold on. We're going to sing two songs and go home. We're going to sing two more about grace. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 19. I trust, this is Paul writing to the church at Philippi, Macedonia, Greece. I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. Philippians 2.20 For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But ye know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father, he hath served with me in the gospel. This is high praise for Timothy. He puts Timothy up so far, he makes everyone else look bad. I have no other man like-minded. Who's going to be the Timothys of this congregation? Forget the ministry for the moment, the service to the cause of Christ. There are families mentioned in, in, at Corinth that were addicted to the service of the saints. Right. We have a serving church. But I want to press you to more. And I want to press those who don't do as much to do more. You should all want to be a Timothy. 
Because if you're not being a Timothy, by what claim do you know the grace of God? The grace of God changed Timothy's life. It changed Paul's life. And Paul as a father with the son Timothy, they both labored more abundantly than anyone else so that Paul could say of Timothy, I have no other man like-minded because only he cares for the things of Jesus Christ. The others care for their own things. And brethren, ask yourselves, look, you know, and among us as a church, do you care too much for your things and not enough for the things of others? I don't have an option about what I preach. The Bible tells me what I have to preach. And so I have to push you like this because this is applied grace. We've got to apply the grace of God in our lives. And Timothy's a great example of it. If we think a second about to whom much is given, much shall be required, what's going to be, what are we going to owe for the amount of grace that the Lord has revealed to us? You know, if you understand God's grace, do you know what you're going to be because of that? You're going to be the most gracious person the rest of us have ever met. Now, if that's true about you, and that's true about me, then two of us ought to get together, get along together pretty well, shouldn't we? If we know the grace of God, then we should be gracious. And the Bible does teach that. The Bible tells us that God's forgiven us 10,000 talents. We should forgive 100 pence that someone's done to us. And the most that anybody can ever do to you in this world is 100 pence. I don't care what they do. I don't care if they kill you with battery acid. It's only 100 pence. 10,000 talents are sins against an infinite and holy God in heaven. You say that's extreme. Of course it is. That's why Jesus compared 10,000 talents to 100 pence. Lord, help us to be gracious because you've taught us about graciousness. We should be able to love our enemies because he does. He's shown us about grace. The discretion of a man is to pass over a transgression. Is grace, and he's a glorious man. There is a transgression. I'll admit it. I'll admit it to each of you. Those of you that are harboring any ill will or grudges or bitterness toward anyone, I'll admit it. They hurt your feelings and they were wrong and they transgressed against you. But do you want to be a glorious man like God is glorious? Then pass over that transgression. Proverbs 19.11 The discretion of a man deferreth his anger. He puts his anger... I'm not going to get upset about that. And it is his glory to pass over a transgression. That's how the grace of God ought to affect us. That's applied grace. We've had frustrated grace, lascivious grace, vain grace, and applied grace. What should you do with today's preaching? Repent of your sins and run to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for gracious forgiveness and lay hold of eternal life. Remember that there was 120 years of God's long suffering before the first raindrop fell and no one repented. And do you know what's occurring right now? There's a few years left before the fireball falls. And 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 and verse 15 both say, that just like it was long-suffering in the days of Noah, it is long-suffering right now. So let us repent of our sins and let grace drive us to holy living and rejoice in the grace of God all the way there. Let's take the grace of God and be the very best Christians we've ever been, starting today. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.